Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conversations podcast, where we are positively obsessed with dog behavior. Join certified dog trainers as we discuss case studies, explore training concepts, and interview experts in the field of dog behavior. Today's host is me, Kayla Fratt, and I'm the owner of Journey Dog Training, um, which you can find both online and offering in-person training in Missoula, Montana. And I'm Marissa Martino, owner of Pause and Reward Dog Training, and I am in Boulder, Colorado. So today we're going to talk about the use of punishment with your dog. Most of our listeners know that Ursa, Marissa, and I are all positive reinforcement trainers, meaning we try to stay as far away from punishment as we can um, and avoid using it in training scenarios whenever, you know, at all costs. Um, We prefer to teach your dog what to do instead of the problematic behavior. And we're going to walk you through six reasons that we feel this is so important for your relationship with your dog, your training success, and for you personally. So the, um, the six reasons, we'll just give them to you really quickly, are going to be frustration, negative associations, damage to your relationship with your dog, learned helplessness, removing warning signs, and just not how you want to be in a relationship. So Marissa, do you want to kick us off with frustration? So the first one we're, we're going to discuss today is frustration. So if anyone could imagine themselves, they go into work or they go into a classroom. So any sort of environment where you're going to be getting feedback from someone else, let's say your boss or your teacher just consistently tells you what they do not like about your performance. So they say no, often they just are, are constantly telling you like that is not the answer. A lot of times we grow frustrated with that learning context. And then what happens is, is we don't necessarily know what it is that the person's looking for or what um, the, the teacher or boss are looking for. So therefore, the whole situation becomes really frustrating. And with dogs, frustration can look like um, increased barking. Um, it, they could be jumping up on us. Um, they could be uh, offering displacement or coping behaviors because that now they're frustrated and then they're mildly stressed. Um, so lots of times, again, when when we're in a learning environment, we want to set up the context so that the dog is getting the behavior correct so that they're getting easy wins and learning becomes a fun process. So Kayla, Ursa, and I are really focused on how can we teach you what it is that we want from you in this context instead of solely punishing the problematic behavior. So Number one is frustration. We want to reduce that at all costs. And it's definitely a byproduct of consistently punishing your dog. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So next, we'll talk a little bit about negative associations. So with punishment, you run the risk of creating a negative association that was not intended. Um, So you might pull back on a choke chain every time your dog barks at another dog. Your dog might stop barking, but they also might start associating Um, other dogs with pressure on their neck, um, which is not necessarily going to help their (laughs) emotional response to other dogs. In fact, it's, it's not going to. And your dog might also learn to associate that uncomfortable sensation with the other dog or with the walks instead of the barking. And then next time you're walking, um, you actually might get more barking and growling because the dog has learned, hey, when you come close to me, my owner hurts me, stay away. Um, So there's, um, you know, there's a lot of other examples of this. So, you know, one that we've seen is electronic fences or shock collars. If you, um, if a dog is getting shocked for crossing out of a property line or chasing a squirrel or something, sometimes they create fearful associations with um, the warning beep. I've heard of dogs that become scared of microwaves because it sounds like the warning beep of their shock collar. 
Um, I've heard of dogs that become scared of the backyard in entirety after being introduced to an electronic fence. And, you know, sometimes we hear from these as if they were success stories where we say, oh, the dog was only shocked once and then he, we never had problems with it again. And then it turns out that's actually because the dog doesn't go the, more than like four feet from the house when he's in the backyard. So, of course, he's not crossing over that invisible fence line. Um, and yeah, we don't, we don't really want our dogs being scared of the world like that. And I have a really, um, a personal story to tell about this. So, um, a couple months ago, and this was actually what spurred us to write this podcast episode, um, we, I had ordered a bunch of stuff from Amazon, um, and was having a lot of delivery people coming by, um, which is not really a normal thing for us, but, um, I just, I was redecorating my apartment. So I had a bunch of stuff coming in the mail <laughs> and, um, Barley was barking at the door and being kind of a pain in the butt, and I yelled at him. Um, and that's a pretty normal thing um, for all of us when we're frustrated. Um, you know, I think we all have done it. And, you know, he stopped barking. He also ran under the bed. Um, you know, he's a pretty sensitive guy. Um, so that, you know, I felt bad about it. I comforted him afterwards. Um, and didn't, you know, think all that much more about it. More just like, Kayla, come on. Like, you know, I, I was beating myself up about it a little bit, trying mm -hmm. to, you know, plan for myself for next time this happened so that I didn't have this problem. And I did. Now I have a little jar of treats um, that are on the key shelf right next to the door so that whenever I'm going towards the door, treats are going to be right there. Um, and the next time someone knocked on the door, which was either later that day or the next day, um, Barley didn't bark, but he also ran and hid under the, the bed right away. Um, and that was just like a big oomph for me in the stomach of just like, gosh, it's not like I did anything that would even remotely be considered you know, abusive, you know, yeah. um, but I really freaked my dog out and, um, we've gotten a lot better now. You know, we've, I've been practicing with the door a lot more and it's, you know, it's, it's such a simple problem and I still managed to screw it up pretty royally without doing anything that again would raise any eyebrows, um, in most circles. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. And, and it, I, and Kayla and I were chatting about this cause she called me and she's like, Oh wow, that was so fast. He learned that association so fast and I need to remedy this. Right. Like I don't want him to be scared of people knocking on the door. And it really only took just the single event learning for him to just say, ah, this is not such a positive experience. So I also have an experience like this, uh, that I've been debriefing with a few of my trainer friends more recently. Cause, um, I'm projecting a lot of stuff onto Sully and I needed to sort of sort myself out from what was truly going on. And, you know, Sully is 11 now and he, we're trying to differentiate between pain related behavior and just maybe negative association behavior. And we think it's a little bit of both, but what he's been doing more recently since the summer, which makes sense, is going down into the basement and lying in the basement and it, because it's a lot cooler. I mean, that, that's what one can assume. And um, because I'm so nervous about him and as he ages, I've got so much stuff wrapped up in that since this is my soul dog. I get really nervous and I've come down to the basement and have applied um, sort of physical pressure, meaning like walking into his space to sort of move him out from the basement and upstairs so that he could be with me. 
So again, like projecting my needs onto him, not necessarily taking into consideration that he might really like to be downstairs to the point where, so I think I did this maybe like 10 times or so, or maybe five. I don't, I don't, I can't really recall because it was from the summer to the point now, if I walk into the basement, poor guy, like dips his head low and sort of braces himself. And I'm like, wow. Okay. Like. I, I didn't even touch him. Like maybe actually sometimes I like applied like my hand and sort of like moved him really gently to like come upstairs. But this is the stuff that we're talking about. You know, Kayla got upset and yelled. I am moving my dog in space and like all are super normal reactions to our dogs. Like, and they are, again, we, we didn't, throw on a shot collar and say, don't do that behavior, right? Like that would be a really extreme, but we did manage to create negative associations to us pretty quickly about really sort of like mild behavior that we were doing. And then the dog responded in a mild way as well. Right. So I think it's really important for us to pay attention to that. And now same, if I go down into the basement, I'm playing find it and sprinkling treats so that my association or my presence predicts something good for him. And then I leave him alone instead of like projecting what I might need from him in that moment, which is to join me upstairs so that I know he's okay. <laughs> so I'm trying to like pull myself out of that. So I think if you're listening, you probably have, have maybe experienced something like that, where again, just the slightest bit of pressure or aversive has, has created discomfort in your dog. Yeah. And one of the things that I think, like when I talk to people about this experience, I've got some friends who have kind of rolled their eyes at me and said, you're, you're babying. Like he's fine. Mm -hmm. And he is, cause he does bounce back pretty well. Um, and I think this ties into what number six is going to be. It's like, well, but that's not really how I like, I don't want to do this because I can get away with it. Mm, it's yeah, not, point. it's not how I really want to be with him. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I, I actually think, um, I really view. So I, I am someone who gets frustrated very easily. And I, with our very first dog, you know, um, when I was a kid, you know, we, this was a dog that we taught via alpha rolls and like literally growling and biting her on the ear is what our trainer told us to do. Um, so it's taken me quite a bit to learn how to manage my frustration without putting hands on a dog. Um, and I'm really grateful that I've had this dog that really he doesn't let me get away with it. You know, I mean, he does and he doesn't. He's relatively resilient in the long term. Um, but he makes it pretty obvious when I've freaked him out. And I'm actually really grateful for that because it's had to make me into a much better trainer. And I've seen spillover from, you know, learning to be much more careful with how I interact with Barley into how I interact with everyone else and other dogs. Um, and that has been really, really good for me, but also really hard. You know, he very much so with his body language calls me out when I am not being as patient with him as I would like to be it as a human being. Yeah. It's confronting, right? Yeah. It's uncomfortable. <laughs> it's so it, uncomfortable. It is very uncomfortable to be called out by your dog. Like yeah. That. Yeah. And um, it's, it's subtle. I think a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about today, like there's obvious reasons, like mm -hmm. if a dog becomes more confrontational because you're using punishment, like that's, that's totally not okay and and uh, really dangerous for both of you. But we're talking about these subtle things that mm -hmm. are happening that is like, oh, maybe we should, I, I want to really pay attention to that and to the dog's subtle body language mm -hmm. and my subtle body language and see what's transpiring from those contexts because 
you're right. Like it's going to, it's going to, if you're open to listening and becoming more aware, it's really amazing what you'll find, but it is confronting. Yeah. Yeah. And even, you know, like one of the things that I, and I wrote about this in an article, I think about how to learn to be more patient with your dog, Uh um, which we'll link to. And um, one of the things that I've noticed with Barley is after I get frustrated with him, he often comes back to me with appeasement behaviors and he's not a very cuddly dog. And that is almost rewarding for me. You know Ooh, what I mean? Interesting. Yeah. Say more so about like, that. So like he comes up to me and he'll like sit, he sits pretty a lot and uh-huh. he'll like sit up on his hind legs and kind of pot me and he's lip licking a ton and his ears are back and his eyes are soft and he's really trying to get up close to me and like cuddle up with me. Um, and that is very unusual behavior that honestly I wish I got more of from him because he's just not a very touchy feely dog. Uh-huh. Um And there's this aspect where, you know, it's not like I try to spook him in order to get that out of him, but it's like, oh gosh, this like this post punishment routine that we're in actually feels really good on my end because I don't get that from my dog very often. And I think it would be really easy to kind of look at this and say, oh, he's recovering well. Oh, he knows he did something wrong. So this is working. And actually, you know, those appeasement behaviors are not that. Um, but it's it's so easy to misinterpret that. Um, mm-hmm. And again, even as someone who knows better, I'm just like, oh, it like it totally mushes my heart to see him do that for me because that's just not cuddliness that I normally get from him. Yeah, but that is, I mean, first of all, that was really vulnerable for you to admit. So I like kudos to you. Click and treat Kayla right now. But (laughs) second of all, I think that's really important for you to pay attention to what's reinforcing about his behavior, right? Because like if you didn't know that about yourself and that felt good to you to get that, you might you might get into a loop mm-hmm. with him where you're like spooking him and then he, and then yeah. he sort of does the recovery appeasement gestures or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's really quite amazing that you're aware of that and you're like, okay, that's not like, I'll find other ways in which to be reinforced by barley. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And so I think that that's awesome. Yeah. I'm I sure mean, I have then- like, I'm sure that, I've done that too. I'm just trying to think mm-hmm. of like if there's examples of that. But I yeah. mean, it's kind of like I know I've had this pattern before with relationships where we get into a fight and then the makeup yeah. is fabulous. I you actually know, was thinking that's of like Scott when you were talking about barley. The <laughs> most tender and kind we are to each other. And sometimes when we do the most fun stuff is sometimes after a big fight. Yeah. And I think, you know, I know relationship experts sometimes talk about that being like mm-hmm. a pretty nasty cycle and a very hard one to break when um, the nicest co- times come as part of like that reconciliation process. Um, totally. Yeah, it's it, it can, it's a nasty feedback loop. And I think also, you know, just on the, on the note of kind of feedback loops, yeah. um, <clears throat> punishment often or, you know, when we're getting frustrated with our dogs, it can often come as a really nice interrupter. So we're able to stop the dog's behavior in the moment, but it doesn't necessarily change it in the long term, which is another really easy way for us to fall into that trap of mm-hmm. thinking that it's working because it stops the dog in the moment. The dog comes to do appeasing behaviors. So we can say, okay, great. The dog has stopped. And now he's showing me that he knows he did something wrong. But then the next day the dog goes back to doing it. And it's because I guess we weren't actually 
properly punishing, um, mm -hmm. you know, because punishment should have an influence on future behavior. We were just interrupting and scaring the dog, but the dog actually didn't learn anything. But if you believe that the dog learned something because the dog was appeasing you afterwards and trying to, you know, diffuse the situation, that very much so leads us to up our ante because we think, oh my gosh, he knows this. He knows it's wrong. It stopped him from doing it yesterday and now he's doing it again. So now he's being a willful jerk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this happens. This cycle is really, really common for most dog owners, for sure. And yeah. if they don't... And it's hard to break. Yeah. And it usually what I'll ask my clients, I think we talked about this on another podcast, maybe with like Dr. Pockle or something like, do you notice if it interrupts the behavior or if the behavior actually goes down? And most do of my think clients are like... Dr. Pockle talked about that. Yeah, yeah. And it's like most of my clients are like, oh, yeah, it just interrupted the behavior. It wasn't that it actually went down. And so... um yeah, so it's definitely a, a another challenging cycle. Which, speaking of cycles, the more and more you have these patterns, these relationship patterns or behavior patterns, the more and more you have these behavior patterns that are not working for you and your dog, the longer you engage in that, and it varies for every dog depending on how sensitive or resilient they are, but Number three is that this could really damage your relationship ongoing. And it doesn't have to be so dramatic in the sense that like the dog, um, every time you leash correct the dog, the dog then turns around and bites you and redirects that frustration mm -hmm. or fill in the blank emotion onto you. And then you get um, physically harmed by the dog like that 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 is a pretty dramatic reaction that does happen um we have had clients mm -hmm. where dogs have then now yeah. because of that constant leash correction they're redirecting that onto whomever's there um so that would be dramatic but we're also talking about like we mentioned earlier the more subtle changes in relationship in the sense that like your dog just doesn't want to be near you anymore because you either predict unpredictability or, um, you are constantly yelling at the dog or like, there's just this sort of divide, um, where the dog is coexisting with you rather than actually connecting with you and wanting to learn more from you in a positive way. So, um, Th this is one that we feel pretty strongly about because we want, you know, folks get dogs because they're companions and they want to have that relationship, but making sure that you're having the relationship that you think you are is, is really important. So paying attention to those subtle body language cues can be really helpful with that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've, we've all kind of seen this. And one of the things that I've noticed is really common with kind of the relationship damaging is the dog has kind of learned to seek reinforcement and seek good stuff in the environment and just kind of try to meet his own needs however he can and wait until he's told to cut it out mm -hmm. um, and kind of hope he can get away with it versus, you know, a dog who has been trained a lot with positive reinforcement is often much more likely to come back to their owners seeking that reinforcement and engaging with their owners in a positive way because they're hoping for good stuff. And sometimes, you know, that can get annoying. I have a dog who um, has been described as over-engaged um, with me both in agility and in nose work in particular where he just really wants to be looking at me and really wants to be checking in with me. Mm -hmm. um, I would so much rather have that though than, you know, we've both worked with dogs where it's just like walking them is a nightmare because like we're trying to like build foundations for leash skills or something mm -hmm. and the dog doesn't, it doesn't even occur to the dog to 
stop pulling for a quarter second mm-hmm. and or like glance at you or anything because that dog has just never been rewarded for anything. And, you know, I've walked dogs before, and especially back when I was a dog walker, you know, back, you know, almost 10 years ago now where, um, you know, I had to do a lot of groundwork to teach the dog to check in with me indoors because if I was outside, the only way to get the dog to stop pulling yeah. was to use, you know, a prong collar or a pinch collar because the dog hadn't been taught that engaging with the owner and offering good behavior was an option. The only thing the dog knew was I'm just going to do whatever I can to get away with it and wait until someone tells me no firmly enough. Mm -hmm. And again, is that just how you want to interact with your dog? And I think it also fills into this kind of self-perpetuating myth of like, oh, well, some dogs need these tools. And it's like, well, he needs that tool because you've never taught him to engage with you and to check in with you and to try to seek reinforcement from you. He's just learned that the only way to get what he wants is to try to get what he wants from the environment and hope that you're not going to stop him. Yeah. And I think that goes along with this, with the question we as positive reinforcement trainers get a lot of the time. They're like, well, I understand that the clicker is used to teach the dog. Like that's what I love. And then I'll give you, you know, I'll pay you off. But how do you, how do you tell the dog to stop doing it? And it's like, Oh, you're like, you have to take a step back and teach the dog what you want them to do. I think that that feels so like proactive to people where our culture is so used to being reactive, like dog does poor behavior, punish. Right. And so, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that is, that's a big question. I mean, I get in my practice too, like, okay, I, I, I get that this is how we teach the dog to sit, but then how do I get him to stop doing this? It's like, well, what do you want him to do instead during that, during that context. And people are really sort of like tripped out by that idea. Like, Oh, I should teach him what I want him to do instead versus just punish him. So yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And it it is, it's such a huge shift. Um, I think for people because it's, you know, nine times out of 10, when I first ask that of a new client, they say, well, I just want him to do anything but this. And it's like, really anything? Yeah. Anything is a better option. Yeah. And sometimes that might be true. I mean, there are yeah. probably some cases where whatever your dog is doing is so heinous yeah. that literally anything would be an option. And that's, oh gosh, I don't even remember whether that's DRO or DRA or DRI uh, reference our humane hierarchy episode. Oh, maybe it's O. Because I've already forgotten. <laughs> maybe it's O because it's other. I think, yeah, I think it's DRO. Yeah. Um, but, you know, most of the time your dog coming up with his own next best option is not going to be something that's actually all that much better. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the way that dogs tend to interact is not always something that we, uh, we would like. Um, And, you know, and just because we really hate their first choice option doesn't mean we're going to like their second choice option. So (laughs) that's true. A lot of the behaviors we don't like are dog specific behaviors, Mm -hmm. which is just such a bummer for that man. Like sometimes I'm like, I know all the dogs were like, can you please stop being a dog? Okay. Thanks. Yeah, it's got to be hard to live with, you know. Yeah, seriously. Uh, I'm really glad that I don't have to try to live in a community of a different species who doesn't speak my language. Um, yeah. Who doesn't let me do human things. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's hard. It's, it's got to be really hard. But, yeah. I mean, yeah, our dogs are amazing. So, you know, they put up with it well. So before we go on to the next three, we're going to take a moment to get a word from our sponsors. Um, and then we're going to talk, you know, we'll start with learned helplessness and to go from there. Hey guys, it's Marissa from Pause and Reward, author of Human Canine Behavior Connection, 
building better relationships through dog training. I am all about relationships, building healthy ones with our human friends and our canine companions. I just released the updated and revised version of this book. I dive deeper into how dogs learn. I introduce the most humane ways to train. And then I offer my six relationship building principles for both your dog and your loved ones. Check it out on my website, pauseandreward.com forward slash human canine behavior connection book. And I'm curious to know what can you learn about yourself through the relationship with your dog? And we're back. So now it's time to talk a little bit about learned helplessness. So sadly, some dogs, when we punish them, they shut down. They engage in this learning process called learned helplessness, um, where basically they learn that any attempt at doing any sort of behavior is potentially dangerous. So they just give up and don't do anything at all. And sometimes this is termed um, the dog being calm or the dog being submissive or calm submissive. And it's actually just a dog who has learned that any of their first, second, third, fourth, 17th choice actions are potentially dangerous. So they've just decided not to behave at all. They've decided that not moving and not making eye contact is the safest option for Mm -hmm. them. So scientists who study this phenomenon in many different species find that after applying aversives to a behavior, such as shocking the behavior, the animal will just stop moving or behaving. And you guys can see um, there's a study on this from 1976 from Mayer and Seligman. And so for a lot of pet parents, we think we've fixed the behavior concern because the dog is no longer doing the thing that we didn't want. But we've got to ask ourselves about the welfare of the animal. And, um, you know, do we really want the dog to be scared to try anything at all or scared to behave and interact with the environment? Um, And again, this this is pretty common um, for dogs that have been trained with serious, heavy aversives um, or dogs who are just very sensitive. You know, we saw a lot of this in the shelter where these dogs had been dealt, honestly, a terrible genetic card and then put through a little bit of the ringer. But, you know, some dogs who go through the shelter come out just fine. And some dogs, you know, they just had a bad genetics, poor socialization history, and then you put them into a shelter situation and they just 100% shut down and have learned that nothing works. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a huge huge bummer. These dogs can be really difficult to work with and to build their confidence back up. You know, in the past when I've worked with these dogs that are on the really far end of learned helplessness and just they really don't want to move or do anything at all. You know, I'm doing stuff like clicking and treating the dog for blinking or closing their eyes Mm -hmm. or looking in a given direction. Um, I might be trying to toss treats away from the dog so that the dog can get up and go collect those treats and then I can click and treat for movement and it can take a long incredibly stepwise process to get a dog who is on the really far end of learned helplessness to interact with their environment and to move around really at all Mm -hmm. yeah and I think you made a really good point in the sense that like these are the dogs that like look quote unquote fixed or Mm -hmm. calm and when you're really taking a look at the subtle body postures and some of the behaviors that they're engaging in or lack of behavior, it's, it's actually clear to a more trained eye that they're not fine. They're not, they're not feeling good. Yeah. And I I know in our crossover trainer episode, which we'll link to, um, Janae talks about an example of a dog that was quote unquote cured of reactivity by um, putting this dog on a table in a downstay, um, you know, like a climb or something. I don't know if it was a climb brand, but you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. 
And then a bunch of off-leash dogs were released. Oh and my if gosh. the dog interacted with those dogs at all, that dog was being shocked. And, you know, <gasps> a lot of owners were, you know, owners who watched this were like, great, you know, he's no longer trying to kill the other dogs. He's not being Cujo. Um, and that's obviously on the pretty far extreme end. But, you know, I highly doubt that dog was truly fixed. And what we're about to talk about next is that dog probably had a lot of warning signals that he potentially used in the past Mm -hmm. being totally removed. So why don't we switch over to removing warning signals? Yeah. Okay. That, that story broke my heart a bit, but it's horrifying. So horrifying Um, again, extreme end. (laughs) Yeah. But But there are are people who pay trainers to do this and those people don't know better. They've, you know, they've been marketed to, And it looks like it's working. And if you don't know, of course, you're going to trust the trainer. You know, if my doctor told me to do something that, you know, was totally idiotic, I'm going to generally trust my doctor to do it, to, to know what's right. Um, yeah. So it's not the owner's fault in that situation. Um, but yeah, it, it, there, there are trainers out there who market that sort of thing and um, explain it away and and people buy it and that's uh, it, yeah that's uh you know our, our industry kind of needs yeah. some regulation but that's yeah. a whole other whole other topic yeah that's <laughs> super challenging <laughs> i do love uh speaking of other episodes dr pockle and i talk about like he was talking about how he gives his clients permission to say no like nope that's not going to work for us or let's try something different or i don't feel comfortable with that and i think that's really really i've been trying to make sure that's really obvious when i'm working with clients more recently like hey if i see something that doesn't resonate with you or you feel uncomfortable like go ahead and and let let's co-create something different Mm -hmm. because we're a team i'm not just telling you what to do and that's it you're not you're not part of this process i know better than right so um for, for the trainers who are listening, definitely check out Dr. Poggle's episode and we'll, we'll link it in the show notes. Um, so yeah, so going to number five, removing warning signs. This is a tricky one. So it is really counterintuitive, but imperative that we avoid punishing dogs, warning signs or communicate. I'm, I'm not even gonna call it a warning sign. I'm going to call it a communication attempt mm-hmm. such as growling, barking, snapping, like any of those behaviors that, you know, most people want them to just go away. It's almost like a child crying in the grocery store. It's like, ah, just make that noise stop. Right. Because it's not socially acceptable for the child to be crying in the store. Child's having a meltdown. People get embarrassed. All these emotional things come up. Um, and we just want the dog to stop growling, stop barking and lunging for a variety of reasons. Right. The tricky thing is, is that if we punish our dogs whether that's a leash correction, a shot collar, um, yelling at them, whatever it is, okay, you might get rid of that behavior. The dog might say, okay, that was aversive enough or uncomfortable enough for me to not engage in that particular behavior or mm-hmm. just interrupt the behavior, which is a bummer because I would appreciate a dog to let me know he or she's uncomfortable with some warning signs right. before escalating to a more confrontational, uh, warning sign, which is maybe, um, snapping and biting, right? Like actually making contact. Yeah. I was actually just having a conversation with, um, some really good friends of mine who, um, you know, from college about, um, kind of this topic and we were talking about dogs and kids. Um, and you know, they were saying, you know, but it is really important for the dog to know that growling at the kid is just totally unacceptable. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. Um, so how, how should the dog, tell the kid that the dog needs more space. Oh, good question. 
Um, and that's not actually the first thing I said. You know, I got pretty heated for a half second. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Not a half second. Um, it was it, it was a really good discussion. I'm really glad. I have a great relationship with these friends, and we were able to kind of work through like this. It, it was a pretty tense discussion for uh-huh. a while. But what we kind of landed on is that you know being like, okay, well, if the dog isn't allowed to growl at the kid, how is the dog allowed to say? you're hurting me, you're scaring me, I'm annoyed, I'm tired, I'm crabby, I need space. Yeah. Um, and what I had actually noticed in these owners, um, you know, earlier that same day, they they had they had their, their dog um, and they were kind of cuddling her and they had her kind of flipped onto her back in their lap uh-huh. um, and were kind of loving on her. And the dog was very clearly uncomfortable. The dog's uh-huh. tail was totally tucked, her eyes are yeah. wide. The dog did not like this, but was tolerating it really well. Um, and I brought that back up into the conversation and it's like, well, I understand what you're saying about you're saying that you would like the dog to communicate her discomfort in another way other than growling. But I just watched you kind of laugh when her tail was tucked and her eyes were wide and she was saying that she was uncomfortable. What would you have done in that situation if she had chosen to growl? Mm-hmm. Um and I think it is it, for them. It was very intuitive. Where they were like, "Well, we would have told her that growling isn't okay," and you know that might have been smacking her on the butt or whatever it was. Yeah. And it's like, well, but you were ignoring these other really, you know, the pre-precursor communication signs. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, like, I don't know if I convinced these people because we ultimately, you know, we talked about it for 10 or 15 minutes. And at some point we were just like, you know, we're going to table this conversation. Let's agree to disagree. <laughs> yeah. Let's say, you know, and, and like I actually, we texted each other later, you know, um, several days later. And I was like, I really appreciate that conversation. I think it was yeah. really good. And like, I hope I wasn't coming off too strong um but i think this is an important thing to talk about and they said you know actually you made some really good points we've been thinking about it and you know like we're yeah and it's not like they have kids but anyway i mean i think it's it's very intuitive to say oh well we need to we need a way to tell the dog that their behavior is unacceptable and whatever they're doing is a hard no um that's a phrase that i hear a lot from people and mm-hmm. I think what's really important then is saying, okay, great. Yeah, I under, I, I agree. I, I don't like it when my dog growls at me. Um, how are we going to get good enough at reading body language that we can learn to respect the dog's communication signals that they give before they growl? Because I agree. Yeah. I don't want to get into a point where my dog is growling at me and it's scary and yeah. it makes us angry. And that can make us react in a way that punishes the growl as well. Mm-hmm. You know, where you're just like, oh, God, and you like smack him on the butt or whatever, you know, yeah. like that's a totally not reasonable, but it's a totally normal reaction just from like how our amygdala reacts to mm-hmm. being shown big, scary teeth. Um, but then we need to say, okay, if, if we don't want our dogs to be growling at all, we need to be able to read the body language cues that they give before growling. And often those are much harder to read. Um, mm-hmm. And then we need to be able to respect those cues and, you know, in a way reward those cues often by giving the dog extra distance. Yeah. And I think you said it really, really well when we were editing the book, like you were like, it's not the growl. That's the problem. And we always make it the problem. It's the Mm -hmm. emotion behind the growl. So why is the dog growling at the kid crawling towards him or like, because he's maybe cornered in the room or he is anticipating the child's going to touch him in a way that he had been previously. And it was a negative experience. So I think I understand you want to get rid of the warning signs most or you meaning most pet owners. However, it's, it's not just something that we punish, make it go away because it could resurface in a way that is more confrontational or more threatening. And, um, 
again, you, you run the risk of creating those negative associations to whatever the context may be. So um, yeah. this is definitely something that we want to take seriously because mm -hmm. growling is an acceptable behavior in the world of dog. We are projecting that we don't want it and we say it's not acceptable, but it, it I yeah. mean, well, and I it's think like, we're scared of what comes after the growl. You know, for us, even the growl isn't the problem. We're scared of what could happen after the dog growls. Mm -hmm. But by removing the growl, we're not guaranteeing that we remove whatever comes after the growl in the dog's book. Yeah, I like um, that too. And, you know, and for kids too, you know, there are times where, yeah, the dog is. There, there are some dogs that just don't do well with kids naturally. And that's a that's a problem. And that, you know, you, need, you either need a family pause parent educator in your home or, you know, in some cases, it's just not fair to the dog. The dog did not sign, sign up to live with a toddler. Um, and that's that's OK. Um, there's also a lot that we can do, you know, because most dogs get better with kids as kids get older. Um, you know, that toddler phase is really hard for really a lot hard. of dogs. And there's also times where it's, you know, as the parent or as the supervisor, um, we need to do a lot to step up and say, you know, this dog is growling because he's trying to sleep and the kid is crawling all over him. And yeah. no, we don't want the dog to growl or bite in that situation, but also the kid should not be doing that to the dog. And if the kid isn't old enough to respect those sorts of rules and boundaries, then there needs to be, um, other, you know, management setups in place to give the dog the space that the dog needs. And we don't need to go way down the kids and dogs route. But, um, you know, sometimes I think we're focusing on the growl because we're scared of what comes after the growl and where there are other ways that we can be preventing the growl other than just punishing the dog for growling. Yeah. And I think too, and, and I'm just, because I am mildly triggered by your story because I, <laughs> I, I hear pet parents say this, like that behavior is unacceptable. I guess I just want to remind all of us that we all engage daily in behaviors that are unacceptable. And for us to be projecting mm -hmm. a perfect dog, like, or a, a perfect expectation on our dogs, like just not really fair. Right. So, Oh my gosh. I, yeah. I think it's if, really important that again, it's, it's a normal dog behavior. All of these behaviors are normal. Yeah. Aggression is normal. Um, and mm -hmm. so, you know, I think it, I think it's, we have to just pay attention to what we're really asking and whether or not that's fair. Exactly. Yeah. So well, I think the last thing here that we'll cover is how, you know, punishment is just generally not how we want to be in a relationship. You know, there are some, there are a lot of dogs that we can get away with this sort of behavior with. A lot of dogs are much less sensitive than Barley and Sully. Um, but that's not, that doesn't mean that that's how we want to be. And just because we can doesn't mean we should. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it doesn't feel good for anyone in the long term. And in the moment, you might, as we said, interrupt the behavior prop. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to create lasting results. And sometimes when it does create lasting results, it's got these other fallouts where, you know, the punishment was severe enough that the dog does not want to engage in that behavior again. But also there's generally some sort of contagion um, from that sort of shock of fear. Um and every time, every client that we speak to that's yelling or punishing their dogs a lot doesn't feel good about it. It's not really how they want to be doing it. Sometimes I do run into people who have a little, you know, kind of what we're talking about. It's a little bit of like almost righteous anger um, where they're like, no, I just need to, the dog needs to know that that behavior is unacceptable. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't mean that they enjoy doing it. Mm -hmm. um, I think sometimes we justify it to ourselves, but that doesn't mean... It's how we, it's what we want to be doing. So I do think, I generally find that my clients are relieved to have other options. Yeah. 
Um, I would agree. Once we've really started teaching them and teaching their dogs again how to do it. Because again, if a dog is used to just being told no all the time, it can take a lot of groundwork that feels very slow to get the dog to a point where the dog understands that engaging with the owner and offering nice behaviors is a thing that is worth it for them. Although, I mean, it often also goes pretty quickly if you're... Um, if you're being relatively skilled with it. So Marissa, do you have anything else to add? Cause I know relationships are kind of your forte. So what else do you have to say about um, not how you want to be in re- your relationship? Yeah. I mean, I think we covered it in the beginning of the podcast, especially cause we were, we were talking about how it could be even just the slightest can be relationship damaging, but yeah, it's, this is the stuff that I thrive on because it, it's really exciting to take a look at myself through the lens of my relationship with Sully and then notice some similarities or differences in relationships with others. Very similar to what Kayla was talking about earlier, how, you know, Barley has sort of opened her eyes, um, in terms of her, her frustration tolerance. Um, and, and maybe, you know, she's got more patience now through her process, her relationship with Barley and then her relationships with, with others. And so I, I think if you're willing to sort of like check in, and not beat yourself up. Like we're not trying to send anyone down a shame spiral. I mean, we, Mm-mm. there, there definitely have been times where I'm like, Oh, Marissa, really? Like, why would you do that? And just project that all, all over Sully. And like, and then now he's <laughs> worried about going on a walk with you or whatever it is. Um, just notice that again, we're going to make, like I said earlier, we're going to make, you know, wrong decisions sometimes. And we're going to react mm-hmm inappropriate, right. Or unacceptable. And that we're all just trying our best and that for us to just check in and see if that's, you know, if we want to handle something differently in the future. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that, that this, this can be a really cool opportunity for folks to just check in with themselves and maybe become aware of something they weren't and then lean into something Mm -hmm. different. So yeah, to recap before we go, um, what we talked about as far as some some of the reasons that we choose not to use punishment and some of the fallout of punishment is, you know, it's frustrating um, for the learner and mm-hmm. often comes from frustration on our parts or other negative emotions. Um, it builds negative associations for the learner. Um, it can damage our relationships with our pets. Um, the animal can become shut down. The learner can become shut down and unwilling to interact with their environment or behave at all in any way. It can remove warning signs from fear or aggression-related behaviors, and it just generally does not feel good. You know, we did talk about, you know, some ways that it can feel good because it feels good to exert control over your environment and interrupting a behavior can feel good. Um, But it's, you know, it's just not how you want to be in a relationship. Yeah. So thank you guys so much for listening. Um, Thanks for joining us today. My name is Kayla Fratt. You can find me at journeydogtraining.com. I've got a YouTube channel. Barley's got an Instagram at Collie Without Borders. Um, And I'm also based in Missoula, Montana for in-person training as well. And I'm Marissa Martino, owner of Pause and Reward Dog Training in Boulder, Colorado. Before we go, please be sure to subscribe to Canine Conversations wherever you find your podcasts. You can find episode notes and bonus materials at canineconvos.com. And we'd love to hear from you. So please send us your thoughts or ideas or questions at hello at canineconvos.com. Our theme music is called Funny Song and it's provided royalty free from bensound.com. Our audio is mixed and edited by James Eady at beher.org.uk. And our logo is from Walker's Hooper. You can find his work on Instagram at walkers underscore username. Thanks so much, guys. Bye.